this Advent season, we're looking at these different prayers, the O Antiphons, which are reflections that the monastic community long, long ago in ancient times made about the nature of the Messiah as he's revealed in various expectations from the Old, Old Testament. Today we're looking at the prayer, O Adonai. And this prayer goes like this. O Adonai, and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai, come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. Now that word Adonai is Lord. And so this prayer is reflecting on the Messiah's role as Lord the one who is in charge over all things. Uh, you notice the identification being made between the Messiah in this prayer and various aspects of God's revelation of himself as Lord. When he appeared to Moses in fire in the burning bush, he tells Moses to take off his feet before approaching the bush. When Moses asks him in that story what his name is, what he's to call him, he says, I am that I am. He's acknowledging his own self-existence, his own independence from the rest of the creation. Next, we see the giver of the law on Sinai. And so here again, the Messiah is being connected with the God who made all things and therefore can tell all things how they're supposed to order their lives, how the moral law proceeds. And yet with that identification, we get this last refrain, come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. The Messiah is identified so closely with God. The Messiah is identified with this overarching power of God for the purpose of redeeming his people. Now, the word Adonai itself does not occur in the passage we're going to be looking at, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, but it's looking at this concept of God's lordship. And so we're using this passage because this passage is a very thorough examination of God's lordship and the Messiah's lordship. So let's pray together before we jump into the text. Lord God, we come before you as your people, thankful that you have given your word to us. We ask now as we come to this portion of your word that you would guide us, that you would prevent me from misleading us in any way, that you would prevent each of us individually as we receive your word together from avoiding what your word calls us to, but that you would be glorified and we would be made more like you as we encounter you in your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the text we heard in Isaiah 9, I'm going to give us a little bit of background on Isaiah's ministry. We're told in the first verse of Isaiah that he began his ministry in the time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those are kings of ancient Israel. And we know from various indicators in the book of Isaiah, he ministered for a very, very long time. Uh, he had to at least begin his ministry before Uzziah died, which was 740 B.C. And we can tell from the death of a foreign king that is talked about in the text as something that happens during the time that, the, that Isaiah is ministering that he ministers at least until 681 B.C. So he's ministering for at least a period of approximately 60 years. So he ministers for a very, very long time. Unfortunately, that period of time is not a good time for Israel. It's a time when Israel is moving from being a very great and powerful and wealthy nation, slipping down the, the economic spectrum to becoming a vassal to other states. 
where they're, they're needing to look to foreign powers for their protection, where their economy is suffering. And the problem is that during this time, Israel's leaders are more and more looking to other states rather than the Lord their God for their security and for their economic power. Uh, two chapters prior to this, Isaiah confronts Ahaz, who is king, and says to him, as Ahaz is beginning to, to seek other kings, see what's, what's happening at this point in Ahaz's reign, a few generations ago when Israel was very powerful and Assyria, this enormous uh, overarching power in the ancient Near East, was not terribly powerful, Israel and the Syrians, not to be confused with the Assyrians, joined together to fight Assyria, and they won. And now, several generations later, the Syrians want to do that again. And the northern kingdom wants to connect with the southern kingdom, which is Ahaz's kingdom. This is long after the time of David when the kingdom has divided. Uh, the northern kingdom and the Syrians want to force Ahaz to join with them. And Ahaz is scared. And he has reason to be. The Assyrians are a remarkably bloodthirsty oppressor. The Assyrians, when they conquer a nation, they torture all of its leaders to death as a warning to other nations not to oppose them. And so when Ahaz is offered the opportunity to join up with two other minor kingdoms to confront the great superpower of the ancient Near East who tortures all of its enemies to death, he doesn't want to do that. He wants to find some other out. In fact, he begins considering becoming a vassal of Assyria reaching out to Assyria and betraying his neighbors so that he can keep himself safe. Isaiah comes to him and tells him, don't do that. God is going to protect you. And God will show you proof that he's going to protect you and give you a sign, protect you and give you a sign. And Ahaz tries to sound pious and say, oh, I'm not going to ask that of the Lord. And yet God has said to him, do what I'm saying to do and I will protect you and I'm going to give you a sign of that. And he says, no, I don't want the sign and I'm not going to do what you're saying. So in the midst of the weakness of Ahaz, in the midst of economic decline at home, and in the midst of the looming threat of Assyria, Isaiah is speaking these words of hope. Now to, to give us an idea of what the, the hope that this, that this passage pictures for us is, I want to share with you a story about a friend of mine. Uh, his name was Ren Schmidt. And as a little boy, he was an immigrant from Germany. And then as an adult, uh, he, he joined and fought in World War II. And somewhat unexpectedly, as a, a person that within his lifetime, his family were still residents of Germany, he was actually sent to the European theater to fight. And in that context, he was one of 24,000 paratroopers that parachuted into Normandy ahead of the Normandy invasion. Now, this is the, the infancy of parachuting. And so when he jumped out of the plane, somehow in, in the jump, he lost his rifle, he lost most of, equipment, most of his equipment. He landed with just a knife and a grenade. I believe he had to cut himself out of a tree, and he immediately began taking fire from a German sniper. And so as he tells the story, he gave the grenade to the sniper to make him go away, which I think means he threw it at him, um, and then began trying to make his way to the beach to rendezvous with the invasion force that was arriving. And he talked about how when he got to the beach, he looked out over the water and he saw something incredible. He saw over 5,000 ships, enormous ships because they were carrying 160,000 troops and almost 200,000 sailors. 
It was the largest naval armada ever to sail. And as Wren looked out at this armada arriving, unlike the Nazi soldiers who were attempting to keep that armada off, he saw this as his rescuers. Now here he's a guy that's behind enemy lines without any of his equipment, with just a knife, trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. And here comes this enormous fleet that, to his mind, is coming to save him. That's sort of a picture of what this dawning light is for the people of Isaiah's day as they're struggling in darkness. We see in verse 11, sorry, footnote, verse 1, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. From the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. That's how this word would be received. There is a rescuer coming who is powerful, who is able to pierce the darkness. I was talking with Richard a couple months ago, and he made this observation. Uh, if, if you've watched the Netflix show, The Man in the High Castle, it's a dystopia about what would have happened if the Nazis had won World War II. And so it is set in the uh, United States under occupation by German forces. And Richard's comment, and Richard is um, Korean-American, uh, Richard's comment to me was, how much it struck him that the American psyche is shaped by the fact that America has never been subjected to an occupation. And, you know, it might be difficult for us to grasp that this word is also for us. For Israel as a nation that suffers occupation, that suffers economic domination by its enemies, that suffers military domination by its enemies, that Nazi connection might not be there for us. The reason that I put the reflection that I put at the beginning of the bulletin, this is a, a song that's set like a, an, Irish, um, an Irish ballad by Richard Thompson. Pharaoh, he sits in his tower of steel, the dogs of money at his heel. Magicians cry, O oh, truth, O oh, real, we're all working for the Pharaoh. I dig a ditch, I shape a stone, another battlement for his throne. Another day on earth is flown. We're all working for the Pharaoh. Call it England. Call it Spain. Egypt rules with the whip and chain. Moses, free my people again. We're all working for the Pharaoh. Egypt land, Egypt land, we're all living in Egypt land. Tell me, brother, don't you understand? We're all working for the Pharaoh. Pharaoh, he sits in his tower of steel. Around his feet the princes kneel. Far beneath we shoulder the wheel. We're all working for the Pharaoh. While we might not be living under domination by a Nazi regime, by some foreign power, we still live in a world that lives under the curse of the fall. We live in a world that is dominated by nations that, as the Psalms reflect, rage against the rule of the Lord, the rule of Messiah. Now, I want to be careful there. When we look at the nations raging against God, that doesn't automatically mean that every government on earth and all of its aspects is an act of, of fighting against God. God uses governments as his means of common grace to order life in this world. But governments, 
and the social structures and institutions of our societies as they set themselves up against the Lord and his Messiah is what this is speaking to. And as people that live under those institutions and societies and governments, we experience that darkness. We live in the face of difficulty, brokenness, and despair. And we're tempted to give up hope. And we're tempted to look to ourselves, like Ahaz was trying to do, and the, the tools we can come up with to protect ourselves. But this passage tells us that because of Adonai, because of our Lord Messiah, we can have hope. I want us to just work through a few of these verses and look at what is, is being held up. Now, Ahaz was told he was going to be given a sign. And the sign back in, in chapter 7 was the virgin will conceive and bear a child. Now, there's an ambiguity in Hebrew that virgin could also have meant young woman. And so some people speculate that the child is actually Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. And when you look at the, the line of Israel's kings, uh, you, you tend to see this just kind of downward slide in terms of the morality and capability and capacity of these kings. And yet, Ahaz, who is a bad king, is followed by Hezekiah, who is a relatively good king. And so we want to, to come to the text and say, is the child that's being offered as a sign, is it possible that it's Hezekiah? So the, the hope offered in this passage is it begins to, to talk about what is going to happen, what this ray of light shining on the nations is. It says in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's possible for Hezekiah. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, Hezekiah is going to be king. Uh, technically speaking, the government is on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, Wonderful Counselor, it, it doesn't mean he's going to be a good psychologist. Uh, the, the counselor there is more like the counsel that kings would seek from other kings. Perhaps knowledge of how to fight a battle or how to, to run a country or organize a state. So to be a wonderful counselor, he has to be a very good king. He has to be very competent as a king, as one who orders and runs the state and defeats his enemies. And Hezekiah has some success in those areas. So it's still possible that we're talking about Hezekiah. But then we get to the next title that's given to this child, Mighty God. Now, in the ancient world, it's actually relatively common for kings to call themselves deities. They believe that by setting themselves up as deities and by being given the honor in their courts that are due deities, it enhances their power, it enhances their control. Uh, Pharaoh viewed himself as a deity. The king of the Assyrians viewed himself as a deity. The unique thing, though, is that Israelite kings, none of the Israelite kings, no matter how bad they were, ever viewed themselves or instructed their people to view them as deities. That is in part because of the uniqueness of Israel's God. Israel's God did not claim to be a powerful God or the God of their region. Israel's God claimed to be the creator of all things. The God who was God over the other nations, over the pretended deities of the other nations. And the God who had revealed himself to Israel at Sinai in the bush, in his law, 
And so Israelite kings, having encountered that reality of what deity meant, regardless of their piety, they just didn't have the guts to claim to be deities. They had some inkling of what it meant to truly be God, and they weren't going to make that claim. And so there is no chance that a prophet of Israel is going to call the human son of Ahaz, Hezekiah, the mighty God. He's looking for something that is not just going to be a king who is going to protect Israel, but a king who is actually so identified with God that he may be called mighty God. The same thing can be said of everlasting father. The word father there is going to relate to the way a king relates to his people. So this is not claiming that the, the Messiah, um, when we talk about Trinitarian language, father and son, it's not usurping the father language for the son, who is who we're going to identify the Messiah as. Rather, it's talking about the relationship of a king to his people. But you, when you call a king everlasting father of his people, that supersedes what any human king can do. This is a king who is going to have to be viewed as the Lord, as God. Prince of Peace, worldly kings control by the sword. Worldly kings overcome the world by strength of arms. And yet this king is called the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. In the ancient world, there's really only one way that governments can increase. You raise an army and you go crush the other guy and you take over his land. And yet this king... The increase of his government will never end, and yet the increase of that government will bring with it an increase of peace. Actually, if you look back at those verses following the idea that the light is going to shine on the people, it says, you have multiplied the nation. Verse 3, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy in the harvest. They're glad as when they divide the spoil. So it's connecting both to the, the joy of military victory and the joy of abundant harvest. This is a nation that as it's increasing and multiplying and, and growing in joy, it's a joy that is outstripping what the people are, have a right to expect as a nation sliding into vassal status. This has got to be looking for something beyond Hezekiah's reign for his people, for their enjoyment of his kingdom. It goes on, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, and these are the, the trappings of war, will be burned as fuel for the fire. We think about earlier in chapter 2, that phrase where Isaiah says that they will beat their swords into plowshares. This is talking about the future coming permanent peace the peace for all peoples, all nations, as the glory of the Lord shines on them. That is what this child is going to bring. Look at verse 7. We've said, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, Israel can take hope in this. Israel can know that God is saying that God is sending himself as their king to right all wrongs, to overcome the situation that they find themselves in. But that, that looking forward, the increase of his government, there will be no end. From this time forth and forevermore, this is for you and me. 
This is for you and me living in 2018 in a very different set of political realities than those confronting ancient Israel. And yet, this speaks to us. The, the peace that it's talking about is epic. It's D-Day epic. It's First Order versus the Resistance in Star Wars epic. It's enormous. And it applies to us. So there's a call here for hope for right now. A call here for us in the midst of living in brokenness. Living in our own cultural version of the darkness that Israel experiences. Do you struggle with purposelessness in your job? Do you really connect with that reflection, we're all working for the Pharaoh? Does it, does it feel like you're caught in a trap? God says that this coming king has come and entered into the world to deal with that reality. There's New Testament reflection on this. In Luke 1, the angel has appeared to Zechariah as he's in the temple and predicted to him that his wife, who is past the age of childbearing, is going to have a child. And Zechariah doesn't believe the angel, so the angel strikes him dumb until the child is born. That child is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is coming to prepare the way for Jesus. But Zechariah, when the child is born and he's able to speak again, as a priest, he's very familiar with the Torah. He's very familiar with the teaching of God. He identifies his son with this prophecy. He says this in verses 76 through 79 of Luke 1. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. You remember who John the Baptist is coming to prepare the way for? He's coming to prepare the way for Jesus. And yet Zechariah is saying Jesus is identified with the Most High. And that John's task of preparing Jesus' way is preparing the way for the Lord. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That reflecting back to the imagery of the people walking in darkness, seeing a great light. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet in the way of peace. Jesus that, that comes after John the Baptist is the Lord himself come into the world. And yet, how is he going to carry out this role that is, is strangely a role of triumph, but also a role of peace? The New Testament passage we looked at, John 19, verses 4 through 11. What we see happening there, as Jesus is betrayed by his own people and given up to Pilate, and Pilate is shifting around and trying to figure out ways to avert blame from himself, and he sends Jesus to Herod, and Herod won't do it, and so he gets sent back to, Her to Pilate, and Pilate is stuck going, I don't want to kill this guy. This guy seems to be innocent. But in his previous interview, Jesus also bested Pilate in philosophical debate. And Pilate's getting concerned because this guy seems to know what's going on beyond Pilate's understanding of reality. And so Pilate goes out again to the crowd, and you see Pilate's weakness here. Pilate, who has power and authority and is the top man in Palestine, has got to capitulate to the whims of a crowd. And he's trying to figure out what dance he has to do because he wants to preserve his integrity. He wants to preserve doing what he thinks is right. And yet here is the, the most powerful man in Palestine 
dancing to appease a crowd. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate's soldiers had just forced the crown on his head and beaten him and mocked him. And so that whole beating is to make him look bad in front of the crowd. Again, Pilate is using Jesus as a prop now, trying to, to appease a crowd despite his power. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate knows the law. He's just trying to avoid guilt again. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. They need Pilate to do the execution because the Roman laws don't allow them to do it. But they're saying, look, we have a reason this man needs to die, and you're the one that has to do it. Man up and do your job as the king. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. His experience of Jesus is backing up the statement. Oh, no. What I'm starting to suspect about this guy, they're saying in their law, is actually what this guy is claiming. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, keep in mind what Jesus is doing. Jesus has come to fulfill what he came to do. Jesus has come to die. And the way John lays out this story, we are seeing Jesus almost as the puppet master, pulling the strings, making the story go just exactly the way he wants it to go, even though that's his own death. It's a bizarre image. Pilate, the powerful man, unable to affect things the way he wants them to. Jesus, a beaten, bleeding prisoner, keeping silent in order to make the story go the way he wants it to. Jesus is demonstrating his control over the whole situation. He's demonstrating his lordship as he prepares to die as the sacrificial lamb. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus sets the record straight, confirming what Pilate has already become suspicious of. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus is identifying himself as Lord Messiah. And as Lord Messiah, he is coming to do what he came to do. In his power taking on the weakness necessary to take the price for our sin. And then to defeat that sin, to defeat death, to rise to the right hand of the Father and to send his spirit so that now we can look back at this passage telling us about the Lord Messiah. And in the midst of the brokenness of our own day, in the midst of our own having to serve Pharaoh, the spirit of our Messiah is inside us, enabling us to do what he calls us to, enabling us to carry out that job in the midst of darkness, knowing that there is a greater light, that there is a light that shines out of us as he uses us as his people in the midst of that darkness. Now, the next thing I want us to see is the future hope in this passage. We look back at verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, have increased its joy. 
They rejoice before you as the joy in the harvest. That's not enough to be confined back to ancient Israel. It's looking forward to the consummation of God's kingdom, pressing into all aspects of our world, making the world into the kingdom of God. Look at verse 5. We read about how every boot of the trampling warrior and every garment rolled in blood is going to be thrown into the fire, and that's the end of war. That's the point at which the nations beat their swords into plowshares because peace has come to be God's rule for all times and places. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not dependent on us. It's the zeal of God to bring about the fruition of his kingdom. A world for all of us to live in, in the certainty of his accomplishing it. If you look through here at the, the tenses that this is described in, uh, in, verses, in the verse 1 through 3, let's see. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You have multiplied the nations. That's perfect tense. That's the already accomplished tense. It's being said as though it's past tense, even though the prophet is looking forward to it still coming about. The, the function of that is saying it's certain. It's going to happen. Because it's the zeal of the Lord that's going to accomplish it. Now, there are still future tenses in the passage. It's saying to these people that are slipping into economic decline and who will continue to slip into economic decline and who will eventually be carted away to Babylon in the exile. He's telling them even in the midst of that, that doesn't say that the mission isn't moving forward. This is still going to happen. It's future hope. It's hope that we have not just that Christ lives inside us and that Christ gives us what we need to be able to confront purposelessness in our work. Or if, if you're in a marriage where you just you see your own sin and you see your spouse's sin and you see you can't overcome that sin. Or maybe you feel like you're working at it and your spouse doesn't seem to care and you feel trapped. Or you're in school and you feel like you're just caught on this hamster wheel, moving forward but always staying in the same place. The spirit that God has sent by the Lord Messiah inside you answers that situation here and now. But the reality that the Lord Messiah will come to lead the nations in righteousness is another sort of hope. It's a hope that the story is going somewhere. That the story is moving toward not just improvement, but ultimate fruition. Ultimate accomplishment. And that's both a hope for ourselves, but it's also a hope for our world. A hope that motivates us to go out and engage our coworkers and our co-students and our neighbors and our families with this reality because we all live in a society that experiences darkness. We all live in the midst of a people that want justice, that want community, that want to live under the beauty of the law. I remember I had a, an ethics prof that was talking about, you know, man, think about what a drag the law is living in a world where no one's going to steal your stuff where you can trust that your spouse is going to be faithful to you, where you don't have to worry that someone's going to attempt to kill you, 
Doesn't that sound like an awful reality? No, it doesn't. That sounds wonderful. And so as, as crazy as it might say to think that the people around us in our world want to live under the law, that picture is what society living under the law looks like, and we all want that. We all have a desire for the, the hope that the reality that we're made in God's image and yet live in this brokenness prepares us for, makes us desire. The only answer to that is the answer that the Lord Messiah has come and has done what is necessary to fix it and is still at work in our world. As we confront meaninglessness in our jobs, God is using us as his means of reaching others with the truth of his kingdom. As the elements of common grace holding society together as that message is carried forward into the world. It hadn't happened then. It hasn't fully happened yet. And that is part of what these antiphons were talking about, the, the Advent longing. As we identify with the Old Testament people longing for the day when Messiah will come, we now get to look back knowing that Messiah has come, and yet still in the midst of darkness look forward, knowing that more is yet to come. When Ren Schmidt saw that armada arriving to begin the D-Day invasion, and then participate in the process of the Allies making a beachhead in Normandy, the character of the war changed. From that day forward, as the war progressed in the European theater, it was just a war of wondering how long it's going to take to finish, not what the finish will look like. Once the Allies made a beachhead on the continent, any historian you look at can tell you the war was, for all intents and purposes, won. But there was a lot of fighting yet to do until the war was over. We live in that already not yet phase. We live in a phase when the war is, by the action of the Lord Messiah in history, won. And yet there is a lot of fighting yet to take place as his people are used as his instruments in our world to bring about that final future day when the nations beat their swords into plowshares, when the sunrise visits us from on high. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the Lord Messiah. We praise you that you are the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father. We praise you that you came in lordship and humility to defeat sin and death. And that you promise us that you are coming again to bring about the glory of your forever kingdom. We pray that you would fill us by your spirit and by your word for the work that you call us to. Living in this day where we live under darkness and yet we see the light piercing. We pray it in Christ's name.